You're listening to The Gesher Podcast, the place where the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities come together to talk about the things that matter. I'm your host, Ty Perry, ministry representative with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry here in sunny Las Vegas, Nevada. Welcome. My guest today is a respected leader in the Las Vegas Jewish community. He's the senior rabbi at Temple Beth Shalom in Las Vegas and a very good friend of mine, Rabbi Felipe Goodman. Felipe, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for allowing me to be with you today, Tommy. Well, this is great. Uh, Felipe, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, How did you come to Vegas and and, uh, tell me a little bit about your story? It's a long story. I mean, it's actually a great story. Uh, You know, I was in Mexico City, where I was assistant rabbi in what is still probably the largest conservative congregation in Latin America. I grew up in that congregation. I came back from the seminary straight there. And uh, Mexico was kind of like unlivable, right? There's a lot of kidnappings and crime. So we made a conscious decision, me and my wife, to look for a pulp in the United States. And uh, one of the places I was looking for a rabbi was Las Vegas. We applied to Las Vegas, and I'll make this long story short because it's actually super fun, but it'll make it short. And uh, I forgot about it. It was November, forgot about it. Suddenly in February, I find myself in New York and I'm at the office of the rabbinical assembly. And one of the administrative assistants comes into uh, Rabbi Schoenberg's office, who was the head of placement for the rabbinical assembly, then says like, the funniest thing just happened. Somebody from Las Vegas looking for Rabbi Goodman is on the phone. They're asking us if we have his phone number because apparently he wrote his phone number wrong in the resume. That's, that's reason enough not to hire me, right? So they put this person on the phone and it turns out to be the person who later hired me for Temple of Shalom, they were looking for me, they liked my resume. They had like 60 resumes, they had a mm-hmm. lot of resumes. And uh, I never thought I was gonna get this job. I really, we fell in love. I, I, I liked them, I think they liked me when I came for my interview. I never thought I was gonna end up in Las Vegas. And uh, it was really what we say in Yiddish Bashert, it was yeah. destiny for me to be here. Now I'm beginning my 24th year. Oh. And, well, uh, I'm glad you came. Because, I'm very happy. Yeah, I'm, very I'm happy. glad to, every Baptist needs a rabbi, I think. So <laughs> you're mine. And every rabbi needs contact with the Baptist. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about the development of Judaism. Because when an evangelical, or anybody really, when you open the Bible and you start reading in Leviticus, let's say, you read about the sacrifices, you read about the priests, um, the tabernacle, later the temple. And then when you look at Judaism today, uh, I've had the privilege of coming to your services uh, several times, and they're very different. It's, it's, it's not what you see in the Bible. How do you go from, let's, let's call it biblical Judaism, to what you practice, rabbinical Judaism? Look, I mean, there's a whole evolution that takes place over many, many centuries. Uh, if you look at our liturgy, in some of our liturgy, we're still clamoring for the rebuilding of the temple and the restitution of the sacrificial cult mm-hmm. uh, because some people believe that this is the way Jews were meant to worship. However, I, I don't believe that, okay? I think that, you know, after the temple was destroyed, uh, I don't think it's a good thing that the temple was destroyed, but I think what happened to Judaism afterwards really was an, an amazing theological evolution where the rabbis of the Talmud, after the destruction of the Second Temple, had to come up with a system that was not central anymore. And they had been preparing for that, right? They had mm-hmm. seen that was all over Galilee and stuff like that, which we're very familiar with. Right. The rabbis that I call the rabbis are the Pharisees. And so they were really gearing up for something like this. They really didn't agree with the centrality of worship. However, it was what it was. And that's the way we 
uh, worshipped God and we brought offerings to the temple and we, were there, we went there three times a year in pilgrimage. When the temple disappears, we have no recourse but to reinvent ourselves. And that's when the rabbis step in. Now, Judaism, as it existed in the days of the Bible, it's not the same as it exists today or in the year 100 or in the year 500 of the Common Era or in the year 1000 of the Common Era. Judaism is an evolving religion. The word that we use in Hebrew for Jewish law is alacha, which means to go, right? It's, it's an active word that means that you're always on the move. Okay. So uh, you need to understand that part of the way we stay alive is by interpreting the scriptures and by understanding Judaism the way it needs to be understood for our day and age, even within the Orthodox community. Hmm. For example, uh, right now there was a whole brouhaha in, in, in Israel with the ultra-Orthodox, whether they should be vaccinated or not. Right, because you know, like every extreme group, they're very careful about extraneous influences on their, you know. So the big, big, big ultra right wing in the fringes black hat rabbis put out a decree that it is a commandment to get vaccinated to save your life. Hmm. Right. So this is the way we look at life. We are not fundamentalists. We evolve, and and that's one thing that makes Judaism relevant and very much stay alive. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the synagogue? Because um, it's like I've been to uh, various ruins of synagogues in Israel. Um, one of my favorite ones to visit is the uh, synagogue in Capernaum, which was where Jesus worshipped. He was there, and uh, I think one of the older ones in the in the land. Um, how how did the the synagogue itself develop? Where did that come from? <sighs> So, look, again, the centrality of the temple was really the way it was meant to be, right? That was what kept Jews from all over the region together. But there came a point where, because it was strictly forbidden to sacrifice, except for in the temple in Jerusalem. And remember, there was a civil war in Israel mm -hmm. that caused Israel to fall to the Babylonians, right? When that happened, it was because people were trying to set up their own altars in the north. Mm -hmm. So we knew from history that this couldn't be repeated, that it had to remain central. But we had to come up with a system where people were allowed to somehow try to enter into communication with God. And they did that through community and through gathering in the synagogues, where, by the way, many rabbis used to go from synagogue to synagogue preaching, right? And that's how Midrash, you know, biblical exegesis comes around. Uh, and that's how rabbinic thought starts to develop, too, because they were all over the place through all of these synagogues in Israel, actually talking about, uh, you know, the Mishnah, the oral Torah, or filling in between the lines of the Torah and things like that. So when I open my New Testament and I read about Paul going from city to city, and he, the first place he goes is always to the synagogue, that wasn't such a novel thing for people, for, for Jewish people in that time to have visiting rabbis or visiting lectures, would it have been? No, I mean, look, he was doing what everybody did. He, right. First of all, he was Jewish. Mm -hmm. So he was doing whatever Jew did. Like, if you want to see where, where the people in the city are, go to the synagogue. That's where they gather. Right. So it was a natural thing to do. Now, it, is, it was not like synagogues are today because there were people that were not so keen to gather in the synagogue because they still believe in the centrality of the sacrificial cult. But it was still a gathering place, mm -hmm. for sure. And that's why Paul went there. Now, the synagogue is, whereas a church is almost exclusively for religious instruction and worship, 
um, although a synagogue, that's its main purpose, you do have, it's more of a community center. Would you, is it, would that be accurate right, to right. say? And, but that, there's a reason for that. Right? Judaism is not only a religion, right? Judaism is a way of life. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to have a place where you just gather, they gather not only to worship and to learn, but they also gather because that's their way of life. So they do things that they have in common within the sphere of their culture. So yes, every synagogue from antiquity to today has been sort of a community center. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. by the way, uh, if you look, uh, if you take a look at the at the checks of our temple, you know what's written on our checks. It says Jewish Community Center of Las Vegas, aka Temple of Shalom, mm -hmm. right? Because this was set up to be a community center at the very beginning. That's very interesting. Um, tell me a little bit about you, you mentioned the the community or the way of life of a synagogue or of the Jewish people. Now I know that there are, there's a spectrum of Jewish thought and practice. And so I don't know what you prefer branches or sects of Judaism, whatever, but I think branches are good. branches. Tell me about the branches um, briefly and how each developed. Where did these branches come from? Look, believe it or not, the first, the first branch of Judaism that springs out from Judaism is reform. Uh, before there was reform, there was only Judaism, traditional Judaism. And reform starts in Europe, in Central Europe, uh, with German Jews who decided they, when the emancipation came, right, they wanted to be the same as the Gentiles around them. So they reformed the religion to be able to have a religion that looks and feels very much like what they had around them. So when they finally get to the United States, we get an extreme version of reform Judaism with, for example, they switched the Shabbat to Sundays. Hmm. And there were synagogues in the Midwest that had services on Sundays and not on Saturday, right? That kind of stuff. After uh, Reform Judaism comes conservative Judaism that was born in the United States as a reaction to extreme reform. That's okay. who we are. And then the Orthodox were always a traditional part of Judaism, except when the other two branches started to become strong, Orthodoxy became a little bit more radical. Right? So that's how the three movements kind of like developed in a nutshell. Right? By the way, also at the same time as reform, in Europe, there was a phenomenon that was called modern orthodoxy, right? where the traditional Judaism that you saw in the little towns in Eastern Europe became a Judaism that was hosted in big cities of Central Europe, where the rabbi, for example, preached in German right? or instructed Torah in German, but still the language of prayer was Hebrew. So they began to become a little bit more modern without giving into the Reformation. So it's 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 a it's a very interesting story. So I want to talk a little this bit. Is, this is very broad strokes, by the way. I sure, mean, we, we could spend hours talking about this. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No, it's fine because with when you talk about Reform Judaism and you said they switched the the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, at least to an evangelical who who would say you can't change what God has said, that seems anathema. How how do you view a change like that? Is that is that kosher or is that is that all, outside? I think it's crazy. I think it's not kosher. I think it's insane. But so do they. There's not a single reform synagogue in the United States today that observes Shabbat on Sunday. Okay. Right? I mean, reform Judaism believes, and I'm not a reform Jew, so I'm not an expert in this, but I can tell you what I know. Uh, they believe in personal authority, right? So Jewish law doesn't have a, a hold on them. They choose what they're going to observe. It's a little bit different than, than when we think, because we think the Jewish law has an absolute authority over our lives because it was, it came to us from God. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
the way I see a tie is they're trying to adapt our religion to the way in which they live in modern day society. And so do we, but we do it without giving up on our traditional values or our traditional ways of worshiping. So you're a middle way between reform and orthodox? Um, you know, that that's our natural position because we're in the center. But I wouldn't say that. I think we're closer. We're closer to orthodoxy than we are to reform. Okay. The orthodox probably would, would disagree with us, with me. But uh, we observe and we believe closer to what the orthodox believe and observe than what reformed Jews believe and observe. When it comes to the Bible, um, an evangelical would say, the Bible, the text of the scriptures alone. There's nothing, there's no tradition, um, history. They don't play much of a role in how we interpret the scriptures. That's not entirely the case with Judaism. You have what, you have the Torah, the law, but you also have the oral law. Could you tell a little bit about that? Sure. The oral Torah is a Mishnah, right? And the Mishnah was finally codified in the year 300 of the Common Era by Rabbi Yehuda Anasi. Now, he codified it for a very obvious reason, which is when you have an oral tradition that comes from the time that, of the revelation at Sinai up until the year 300 of the Common Era, if you ever played a broken phone with your friends when you were a kid, you know that the message that began at the, at the end of the row is at the end of the line. It's not the same one that comes out of the, at the beginning of the line. Mm-hmm. So imagine after all these thousands of years, it's impossible. So he decided to write it down. By writing it down, he did something that probably should have never happened because the reason why God gave us an oral Torah was for it to be flexible, right? And that's part of the identity of Judaism. So we do believe that Moses received this together with the written Torah. If you look at uh, the Tracty of the Sages or the the teachings of the Sages in uh, the Mishnah, which is in uh, the order of damages, you will find that the opening statement finds uh, a very detailed uh, procurement of how the law was transmitted orally from beginning with Moses to Joshua, et cetera, et cetera. And then very detailed instruction on how to prevent the law from being modified, right? This is a very important part of what we believe. They say that you have to create many, many students and you have to build a fence around the Torah, right? So this oral Torah is meant to be a fence around the written Torah so that we can actually understand it we can interpret it without modifying it. It's a very interesting idea. So in that vein, when you're talking about building a fence um, in the New Testament, that was kind of the point of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees so often was that he said they were they were um, adding burdens to the people. That, and that's the negative view. You have the positive view. When it comes to adding a fence around the law, I think probably one of the, one of the examples I always think of is um, that, that you have to eat kosher food. And of course there are kosher foods listed in the Bible, but, um, I know one of the, one of the examples I use is a cheeseburger. You're, you're my friend, but you're never going to go out with me for a cheeseburger. Tell me, how do you get from, how do you get to the point where you can't eat meat in dairy products? Well, before I tell you that, we can go for a cheeseburger. It's going to have to be soy meat, right? Or <laughs> yeah. soy cheese in a kosher restaurant, right? Okay. Uh, because, you know, I only eat kosher meat too. Right. But uh, the, the, how do we get to that? It's exactly that fence. Because we believe that if you mix dairy and meat, at one point you will end up boiling a cafe in its mother's milk. We create fences and restrictions so that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right? 
And I understand that uh, this sounds almost crazy, but think about this. In my mind, one of the reasons why we have all of the restrictions around what we can eat and what we cannot eat, you know, the loss of keeping kosher by extent, is because God had to impose limits on us. On us. If we did not have that limit and we could eat whatever we wanted, there is no saying that I will not devour another man or another human being at a point in my life. Hmm. So kashrut, believe it or not, is not only a dietary law, it's a moral law. And kashrut, uh, referring to kosher, that's yeah, what that means? To keeping kosher, right? So that extends to all of these fences that we put around these uh, prisons, that we do not transgress them without trying, and that at one point it will become the norm to transgress them because of what we're used to. Mm-hmm. So all of these fences are a reminder of where we need to set our limits. Sure, sure. Um, I want to talk about about the synagogue when a, at a church. So when my wife and I joined our church, one of the things we have to do is to make sure that we are in agreement with their doctrinal statement, that, that as far as what that church believes, we can sign our name on to that. Um, and that's required to become a member of many evangelical churches. Not entirely the case with uh, joining a synagogue. What's the what are the requirements to join a synagogue? Look, uh, by and large, to join a synagogue, you have to be Jewish. There are synagogues today, including conservative synagogues, where you don't even have to be Jewish to be a member. Uh, you don't have to make a declaration of theological uh, beliefs to join a synagogue. That's the case even with an Orthodox synagogue. However, at some point or another, if you don't practice like the majority of the synagogue practices or observes you'll find yourself not wanting to be there because you're going to be, you know, set aside on your own. Not that anybody's going to push you away, but you're going to say, oh my God, I don't belong here. This is either uh, too to the right for me, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, too conservative for me, or it's too liberal for me. You select yourself out by yourself mm-hmm. uh, because the community has a tremendous voice on what happens within the synagogue, right? It is not, uh, it is not solely set down by the rabbi. The rabbi is the ultimate authority, at least in Orthodox and Judaism, Orthodox and Conservative Judaism, as to what happens within the synagogue in terms of Jewish law, but the community sets a tone, right? And it's a very important thing. Now, in talking with you, I remember a story, and I'll see if you remember this. You and I were on the March of the Living uh, in 2018, or 2019, and um, we went to Poland, and then we went to Israel. And I remember I remember the night of uh, Yom Ha'utzma'ut, uh, Israeli Independence Day. We were on Ben Yehuda Street, and uh, I hadn't packed adequately, and it was cold. And so we went into a little shop. I was going to get a sweatshirt, going to check out, and the man asked me, "You know, am I Jewish?" And I said, "No, I'm a, you know, I'm an evangelical, but my friend is Jewish." And uh, you said that you're a rabbi, and he asked you a question, and I'll never forget this. He said, "Oh, are you messianic?" And I saw a look on your face I've never seen before. And uh, afterwards, you, you were you were upset, I think. And after you were very upset. And we went outside, and you explained to me why that bothers you so much. Can you explain, um, like especially within the context of a synagogue, believing in Jesus really is like the one, the one disqualification for you becoming a member? Would I be right in saying that? You'd be one hundred percent right. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about why that is? I mean, look. By the way, when you signed up to be a member of the synagogue. We don't ask you what you believe, right? But if at some point you display signs of believing in certain things, we will have a talk, you know? 
because I don't want this to get to our children or to our members. It's uncomfortable for us. Now, what happened in Israel, I remember it very well. You know, they see a Jew with an evangelical. They believe I'm like crazy to be with an evangelical, right? Uh, in Israel, it's that way. You know, your friends are Jewish or your friends are Jewish. That's the end of the story. Look, uh, I'm a Jew. I don't believe in Jesus. Uh, none of my Jewish friends believe in Jesus. None of my family members believe in Jesus that are Jewish. I think it is important to understand that that is a line that we do not cross. Not because of Jesus being Jesus, but we don't believe the Messiah has been here. Mm -hmm. We're still waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for the Messiah to come. So I don't want to negate one of the most important things in my theological understanding of the world, right? And I, I think that Jews who actually say they can be Jews and believe in Jesus at the same time are, are really, really selling this, themselves shorts in either, either either of the cases, right? If you're Christian, be Christian. If you're Jewish, be Jewish. Mm -hmm. Look, I mean, and you're going to understand this, Ty. Uh, if Jesus really came into this world, uh, which is what you believe, to actually put an end to all of these laws, he, he became the law. He fulfilled of, it. Right? right, he fulfilled the law. Why would there be Jews that want to be Jewish and Christian at the same time? I don't understand it. Yeah. Right? Uh, it negates a big theological principle of Christianity. I don't believe in it, right? But these Christian Jews, these Messianic Jews, sure believe in it. So what are they What are they doing? Either you are or you're not. Right? What about the argument, though, that, because I have many friends, many, who would say, I am Jewish in the sense that I am a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My, my parents were Holocaust survivors. We, we are Jewish, but uh, I do believe the Messiah has come. Would you say that those people are no longer Jews or... Yes, you say, I believe okay. they're no longer Jewish. Okay. I don't care if your parents are Holocaust survivors or where they came from. If you believe in Jesus, you're no longer Jewish. There's a very famous case in Israel in the 60s. Father Daniel from France wanted to make Aliyah to go live in Israel, right? And to claim the law of return. He was a Catholic priest who was hidden during the Holocaust. And he applied for the law of return. And the Israeli Supreme Court law uh, ruled based on Jewish law that, yes... He could be part of the Jewish people. But once you start believing in Jesus, that's the line. This is a precedent in Jewish law recorded by the Supreme Court of the State of Israel. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's not only me who feels this way, Ty. There are limits. Sure. Right? And for centuries, for centuries, we've held on to this line for a reason. Not because we hate Christians or we don't like Christians or we don't like Jesus. Simply we believe Jesus is not the Messiah. So that's the end of the story. They want to believe Jesus is the Messiah. Zyke is it. Go become Christians. Leave me alone. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about this before. Because this, to you, this is logical. And when you, when you tell me that I see your logic, to an evangelical it seems strange that if someone is, they're a Jew, but they're an atheist, uh, they don't. They they don't believe this God stuff, but they want, for whatever reason, to become a member of the synagogue because it's part of the. They want to be part of the community. That is acceptable. But so, but to be uh, someone who affirms, yes, I do believe in the God of Israel, and I believe Jesus is the is the promised Messiah. That's not. Acceptable. There's a phrase in the Talmud, an Aramaic phrase, "befarhesia," right? That frame, that phrase, "befarhesia," that word means something very specific. It is not the same when I violate, violate Shabbat as when I violate Shabbat de Farhesi, I mean, in an explicit knowingly way. If I go out of my way, right, 
to do things on Shabbat that I shouldn't do, that people should see me do. Mm-hmm. If I violate the laws, the dietary laws by parhesia, meaning if I on purpose go and eat a cheeseburger in front of a lot of hundred Jews so they can see that I'm doing it, that is wrong, mm-hmm. right? If I eat something without knowing that it's not kosher, okay, we can talk about it, right? You didn't know. That's what I see in the atheist. I, I believe they don't know, right? But somebody who explicitly believes in another God, because remember, Jesus is another God. For me, I'm sorry to say this, okay? There is no difference between Jesus and an idol. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is paganism. So they want to go do that explicitly. Again, become Christians. Yeah. Okay. We obviously disagree, but we can. No, I know. I'm glad. I I I love you. I really love you, you. and that's why I like to talk with you because and I cannot not be honest about this. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I love that you are honest with me, and you tell me exactly where you're coming from because it's it's beneficial for me as someone who loves Israel. I love the Jewish people, and so appreciative of them to better understand them. So I I really appreciate. I think that that part of the problem with Messianic Jews Mm -hmm. is they have a hard time explain to the Jewish people why they're doing this or, you know, why, you know, oh my God, we love Jesus, but we still want to be Jewish. Look, I don't have a problem with Christians. You want to be Christian? Please go ahead. I will love you the same. Mm -hmm. But but don't sell my way of life short. Sure, sure. I want to turn very briefly to Zionism. And I I want to talk about this much more in depth with you in another episode. But um, where Zionism, uh, as I would define it, is the belief that Israel, the Jewish people have a right to the land, a historic divine, I believe, divine right to the land. Um, how how does Zionism fit in with rabbinic Judaism? Look, uh, first of all, the classical definition of Zionism is the right to self-determination of the Jewish people. So I believe in that 100%, whether divine or not. I believe it's divine also, right? Uh, and it fits within rabbinic Judaism tremendously. God made the promise to our ancestors, that that's our land. Uh, I think I, we've talked about this before. You know, during Passover, we drink four cups of wine, based each one of them on four promises that God makes throughout the Torah. I will bring you out and I will redeem you, etc., etc. There are five promises. The fifth promise is, and I will take you to your land. Why don't we drink five cups of wine? The rabbis never put it there because they thought that, well, we didn't have our land the people that we live, lived amongst in the diaspora were going to think that we had to do a loyalty. Sounds familiar? Yeah. Right? And, and so now that we have the state of Israel, we bring that promise and put it, put it at the center of the Passover ritual, people like me, right? And we drink a fifth cup of wine, celebrating that that promise of God has actually been fulfilled. Um, rabbis spend their lives, the rabbis of the Talmud, yearning for the temple to be rebuilt. That is their Zionism, Right? For them, the temple being rebuilt and returning to Israel, that is their Zionism. Mm. There isn't a single Jew throughout history that doesn't have an eye on Zion. And by the way, they were always Jews in the land of Israel. It's not like we abandoned it forever. I mean, they made us go, but the ones who stayed, stayed. So it's a very important thing to understand that the land of Israel, it's always at the center of Jewish thought, regardless of time and regardless of theology. How would you recommend, and I want to do this in closing, how would you recommend a, uh, an evangelical better understand their Jewish neighbor? What's, what's something that they could do to, uh, or something they could read, or something they could ask to help them understand them? Look, uh, reading something 
maybe a little bit hardcore at the beginning, but I think just go have coffee with your neighbor and ask them honest questions and do it without trying to convert them, right? That's part of the problem, Ty, that anytime, you know, if you talk to the older people in my congregation, when I first started having, uh, you know, approaching Christians United for Israel and stuff like that, they would say, don't bring them here. All they want is to convert us. So that's always in the back of our minds. Mm -hmm. So if you want to know more about your Jewish neighbor, go have coffee with him, have an honest conversation without trying to convert them because that shouldn't be the aim of an honest conversation. And I think that's the beginning. And then we can talk about reading stuff. But first, just have a conversation. It all begins with that. Well, I'm thankful that you and I can have an honest conversation today and really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thanks for joining me today, Felipe. Thank you for being here, Ty. It's, it's so wonderful to, to be doing this with you. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Rabbi Felipe Goodman. I know I did. Be sure to subscribe to the Gesher Podcast on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or Podbean to ensure that you get to hear future episodes. I'm your host, Ty Perry, inviting you to join us next time for another conversation about the things that matter. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.